in the 1880s, Leopold II was king of this small and newly created nation of Belgium. And he had this insatiable craving to see his tiny little country grow in wealth and influence, all like all the other nations of Europe. And it was during this period of colonialism, imperialism was on the rise and, and nations gained their wealth and power by moving in and finding other territories and, and conquering those lands and occupying those lands. Well, he looked out over saw there really wasn't much left in the land grab. And so he looked around the world, and, but he saw this un, uh, unexplored interior of Africa. And so he sent this private army into what is now known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And he was going to take the territory for his own personal possession in hopes that it would become really a fountain of wealth for this small country of Belgium. And he was obsessed with finding something valuable there that could be exploited for personal gain. And so he found, found the land was rich with rubber trees, rubber plants. And so... Timing was such that there was kind of an industrial revolution going on at the time and there was a demand for rubber. So he thought that was his ticket. And so the problem though is that the harvesting of these rubber trees was so difficult. And so it was so difficult that the inhabitants of the land, they didn't even want to work for them, even for money to, to harvest these trees. And so he wasn't going to be stopped though. So King Leopold unleashed his private army. It was called the Force Publique. He unleashed it upon the Congolese people and he forced the native people into slave labor. And they required, he required of them to meet a rubber quota of, of harvesting this sap. And it was nearly impossible for them to do this. And so to enforce the quota, he sent his private army and, and they used any means, chains and whips and rape and just unthinkable brutality on these people. Villages were burned down that, that wouldn't keep up. And their most famous tactic, and this is what they're really known for, was they would sever hands and ears and noses off of the people, off of the slaves who thought, were thought to be lagging behind in work. Just listen, this is one of the things, they, they pile these hands in strategic places just to remind people, work harder. Work harder. And one writer of this time said the basket of severed hands became the symbol of Congo. The, the collection of hands became an end in itself. Forced public office soldiers brought them to the stations in place of rubber. They even went out to harvest hands instead of rubber. They, the hands became a sort of currency. They came to be used to sort of make up for shortfalls and rubber quotas. And the soldiers were paid their bonuses on the basis of how many hands they collected. It was this reign of horrendous, unthinkable violence and terror. An evil violation of human rights and one that eventually brought the outcry of the world at the time. And yet we know this, this is not an isolated incident in the history of the world. This gross violence and injustice and wickedness is something that's been seen since the fall of man and in all places of the world, even in our own backyard as we know. The world we live in is one in which it seems that tyrants prosper. He got rich exploiting these people, murdering these people. It was estimated that as many as 15 million people were killed under his vicious reign there. This, 
this is the world that Asaph came face to face with. So take that story from history. And we have our own stories. We have our own Leopolds and our own versions of that. Maybe not on a a social scale, but even on a personal level. Within a family, within a neighborhood, within the workplace. And take that world and, and let that sink into your mind as we, as we look at Psalm 73. Asaph was one of Israel's main worship leaders for, for the people. He was the Alan Bino of their day. And he probably couldn't play the piano like Alan, but he was their worship leader. And his task, he was appointed by David as a Levite. First Chronicles 15 says his whole purpose in life, single-minded purpose, was to raise the sounds of joy. For the nation. That's what the text says. And so he wrote songs and he led the congregation in singing those songs. And of course, David, King David, wrote songs for Israel that were used in their worship. And Asaph led those songs. Just as an example of one of the songs that David wrote for Israel is in 2 Samuel 22. And Asaph probably led out in the singing of this song and some of the words. Just listen to these two verses, verse 26 and 20 through 28. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. And with the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. God blesses the righteous. God brings low the wicked. And that's what's taught throughout Scripture. And so as I just, this is how I imagine it. Asaph's preparing for Sabbath worship and he looks at the set list for the week and he sees 2 Samuel 22. I don't know, but he could have other places, other Psalms. He's inspired words and he can't get them out of his mouth because of what he sees all around him. It seems like there's this massive gap between what that truth communicates and what he observes in the world because of what he knows about the world. There were King Leopold's Everywhere, and they're prospering, and they're increasing, and they're exploiting the, the, the poor and the weak, and they're getting rich and powerful through violence and oppression. It, it didn't seem as though God seemed tortuous to them. It seemed as though it was the righteous to whom God seemed tortuous. And so Psalm 73, it's the wrestlings of a worship leader's soul as he's trying to make sense of what he sees, what his experience is. He's trying to call the nation and to raise the sounds of joy for God's people in the face of just this gross injustice and suffering. And so Asaph struggles deeply with this question. Why do the wicked prosper? He wrestled with it because, again, his world is full of Leopolds, great and small. And we we wrestle with this question too, if we're honest. This is the kind of stuff that bothered Asaph. Murderers, oppressors, exploiters, they profit, they have an easy life, they don't seem to have any cares in the world, and they don't seem to have to answer to anybody. And yet the people who are loving and serving and living and working for life barely get along. It bothered Asaph, and it should bother us. So how do you raise the sounds of joy when when this gross injustice is occurring all around you and, and to you? How do you restore how can God restore worship and, and, and delight in God in the midst of an evil world? And this is what Psalm 73 does. It's in a very strange, admittedly, and roundabout way, the text does raise the sounds of joy. 
It's not in a trite way, not in a happy, clappy, evangelical way that's so often done today. But it does raise sounds of joy. And the song begins on its high note. It begins with its conclusion. This, and it's the key to the whole psalm. Verse 1, truly, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He begins with this conclusion. Something, this declaration that's true about God, truly, take it to the bank, he is good. And he does good. And that's a, that's a different way than saying that Butler-Florida game yesterday was good. This is different. This is, this is God's moral quality, his benevolence, his kindness. He's acting on behalf of others for their good will, for their benefit, for their good. And this is hugely important to understand this psalm. Where he concludes, it's because Asaph is wrestling with the situation that his eyes are observing and that he's experiencing It doesn't look good. It doesn't look like God is good. He says he's good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I think that's the same thing. This is the Israel that is the pure in heart. It's the true Israel, the faithful to God Israel, the ones who are on the inside, what they say they are on the outside. He's good to those. And he comes out of this painful experience and this process and the struggle has ended and his faith is restored and his conclusion is this, truly God is good. And it often takes suffering and affliction and pain for the goodness of God to really mean something to us, doesn't it? It's not, it's not, it's not when the barns are full and the children are healthy and the 401k is growing and the promotions are flying in and the raises. It's not then that we really relish in the goodness of God. Oh yeah, we do thank God for his goodness in those times. But the declaration of the goodness of God here is not the cry of one just kind of skating through a life of ease. It's one who's hit rock bottom. It's on the worst day of your life. This is the confession. God is always good. And he does all things good. So that's the end. That's the, so you're saying, let's go then. Uh, but we're not done. <laughs> I'm not ended. That's where his conclusion is. That, but what brought him to this glorious declaration? Verse 2. But as for me, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps had nearly slipped. My feet had almost stumbled. My sli- steps had nearly slipped. My feet almost slid out from under me. My, his confession here is honest and it's brutal and raw. He's saying, I actually came close to abandoning my faith. I think that's what he's saying. Now, there was something that came into his life that shook the core of his being so much that he almost fell, slipped, fell away from God. That's how it felt to him. Now, we know from the close of the psalm that God was the strength of his heart. And then even when it felt like he was slipping away, that God still had hold of him. But the way that he experienced it, the way that it felt to him in the moment in his experience was this, 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 this trouble came into my life like a flood. I couldn't get away from it. My feet almost slipped. It's like you've stood in a fast-moving stream and, and that rock, and you just feel like you're going to go at any time. And that's a scary thing if it's really kind of floodwaters or something. But he's saying, I, I almost fell away from the God that I love. My feet had nearly stumbled. So we sing, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And Asaph, that's me. That was me. I almost stumbled. 
For why? Why did he almost stumble? Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And we say, that's a dumb reason. (laughs) I mean, you got to do better than that. No, don't take this struggle too lightly. Because what he wrestles with in this passage is something that we all feel. Again, if we're honest. And Asaph's problem is not essentially suffering. It's justice. It's justice. He looked out and he saw the arrogant, the boastful, proud, resisting the authority of God, refusing to live under his authority, and they prospered. And he says, that's not right. That's not right. He saw the prosperity of the wicked. The word prosperity is shalom, peace, rest. I saw the shalom of the wicked. And if there's anything the Bible tells us, it's that the wicked are not supposed to experience shalom. They're not supposed to be at rest or to be at ease. There's no, no peace for the wicked. There's, Proverbs says they're, the wicked, they're always running, even when nobody's chasing them. They're, that's how they're supposed to be. And Asaph says, I looked out and I saw this rotten, horrible, wicked people experiencing shalom, prosperity. Why? Why do good things happen to really bad people? Because conventional biblical wisdom says it's the righteous who enjoy and experience peace, shalom, and the wicked experience misery. The wicked are supposed to be like the chaff that the wind drives away. Psalm 1 tells us that. But these wicked men seem to be like trees planted by streams of water. Whatever Whatever they do, they prosper in it. That's supposed to be the righteous. They shouldn't even know how to spell the word shalom, let alone experience it. And so here, he says, I looked out and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't register with him. So what happened? What are you doing, God? Are you asleep on the job? This is his his confession. His feet almost stumbled when he saw this. And and we can put a face on this dilemma, can't we? You work eight to 10 hours a week and you're faithful on your job. You don't cheat the company. You don't gossip. You don't lie. You don't steal. You do your work with joy. And some guy who's a sluggard and a slacker He's a liar and he's a cheat. And when it comes time for promotion, he gets it. And you sit in your dingy cubicle and wait for the next year and hope for the best. Or a single mother left raising four small children because her cheating husband ran off with the secretary. And so he's out living La Vida Loca and, and you, there you are changing diapers and feeding these kids and just trying to make ends meet. It's injustice is everywhere. And so this is what he's trying to, to reconcile. And maybe you haven't experienced some catastrophic injustice that's committed against you personally. It's just rattled you to the core. But you may. And, you have, and we have lesser degrees of, and that are not pain-free in our lives. So verses 1 to 3, we have the conclusion. We have this confession. And, and so the final verdict and the dilemma that started this process of arriving at that verdict, now he's going to lay that out. He's going to recount his experience of walking through this. And so we get to say, see Asaph's soul just laid bare before the people here. And he reflects back on a struggle that brought him to that conclusion that surely God is good. And how was he thinking when he almost slipped? How, where were his eyes looking? And so the outline in the text, it follows this progression in pronouns. And, and you can see it very clearly in the English text here. You have these three postures of the heart when his feet almost slip, these three tones of voice. And so we can find ourselves in here. The first posture of the heart 
is that of the comparer. And we're going to see this third person pronoun. We could say it like this. But God, look at them. Look at them. He's comparing to them. And so we see this in verse 4 through 12. He's recalling his own soul struggle. And he remembers where he first looked. He looked at them. He looked at the wicked. And what were the observations that he made when he observed the wicked? Look at verse 4. There's no pain in their death. They have, they have no pains in death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, we think fat is not such a good thing in our day. But this was just a sign of abundance, of wealth. They had all they needed and more to survive. Charles Spurgeon said they, they have a quiet death, gliding into eternity without a struggle. So that they live fat and happy and they die fat and happy. They have these easy, trouble-free lives. That's what it seems. And you see it again in verse 5. It's trouble-free life. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're sheltered from the pains and struggles of the masses. They're insulated by money and power. And so they they don't know what it's like to experience real pain. We've seen this in the headlines, these CEOs of these companies and, and, and just squandered millions and millions of money of their employees and all their retirements, and yet they're getting bonuses, these million-dollar bonuses. You say, they don't have a clue. You see that injustice, that gap? And this is, the, this is what he's talking about. Verse 6, they're full of pride and vanity. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So evil is it's a source of boasting for them. They flaunt their wickedness. It's a status symbol for them. They do whatever they have to do in order to get what they want. As one commentator said, they live their lives at the expense of others. They live at the expense of others. And they're greedy, verse 7. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. The more they get, the more they want. And their abundance doesn't result in gratitude and generosity. It's not God blesses me so that I can be a blessing to others. That's not it. They just want more. They want more. I always want more and more. And they boast Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. They loftily threat oppression. They, they mock everything, nothing sacred to them. They breathe out threats of oppression. It's just normal business for them. Verse 9, they blaspheme God. They're, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. That's a graphic picture, isn't it? Strutting around, their head held high and chest bowed out. And they just... they. One, again, one commentator, they, they daringly talk as if they were God himself, and thus the whole world is theirs. They're Leopolds. They blaspheme God. And in spite of all that, verse 10 says, they have tremendous influence on people. They have a following. It says that, therefore, those people turn back to them. The idea is they turn and praise them, and they find no fault in them. <laughs> I mean, the wicked in their pomp and prosperity... They, they attract these success worshipers, those that drink the Kool-Aid, as it were, and just, just love to watch their lives and this prosperity that they enjoy. This is the tabloid reading people of their day. Just love to watch that celebrity and the gossip and see these extravagant lives that they live. And they, these wicked people find a following. And they're, verse 11, they're practically atheists. They're, they are. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And they, they reason, God hasn't stopped us. He must be oblivious to all this. He's not, he doesn't see anything. He doesn't know anything. They, living as though God doesn't see or know. And then verse 12 sums it up. They are, these are the wicked. This is them. Always at ease, they increase in riches. This is Asaph's perception. 
those who deserve to suffer, those who deserve the swift justice of God, they're always at ease. They're growing in power and wealth and influence. The rich are getting richer by breaking God's laws and blaspheming God's name. And this just shakes Asaph to the core. It's just just not the way it's supposed to be. Why don't these greedy, fear-mongering, violent, blasphemous dirtballs get what they deserve? This is what Asaph's struggle is. But God, look at them. He's, he's, this is the posture of the comparer. They're getting what the righteous deserve. They appear to be blessed by God and prospering. Let me make a note before we go further. And we know this. Asaph, he doesn't see everything there is to see, does he? This is his perception. And that's an important thing to, to remember when we observe others. We don't see it all. We don't... Don't trust the observations that you have of other people. Because it's not all as it seems. Our perceptions are faulty. Our, our estimations are wrong. And, and, and they're at least incomplete. And there was much more to the story than what Asaph, Asaph observed, as we're going to see. Their end. And the guilt that they experienced. And the private anguish that they endured. He didn't see everything. But what he did see, it troubled him deeply. So, first question. How do we respond in when we see the prosperity of the wicked in our own day, in our own Leopolds, do we sit and fume and moan and about how our boss has it so much easier than we do? Do we seethe with anger and hatred for those who have wronged us and seem to just live with no, no bad consequences? Are you a comparer? Is this the tone of your heart in times of suffering? But God, look at them. Everybody else has it so easy. Looking with envy at the ease of others. That's not the answer. So what's the answer? Well, there's a second possible posture of our hearts, and that's, that's the complainer. A complainer. And you see it in verses 13 to 16. You see the pronoun change. Now, so Asaph said, God, look at them. Now he's going internally to say, God, look at me. Woe is me. So in verse 13, he said, all this godliness is for nothing. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I've served God for nothing. I've devoted my life to your service. I have no land. I have nothing. I'm a Levite. You're my portion, my inheritance. I've done all this. It's, it's in vain, God. He's looking at the evidence, looking at things he can see, and his conclusion is I've kept my heart pure and innocent for nothing. And don't, don't, we, we got to be careful not to read hypocrisy into his words there. Because in... In, in Old Testament perspective, keeping your heart pure and washing your hands, is, it's trying to live a life avoiding sin. It's, it's living according to God's word, standing for righteousness, obeying God's laws. It's revealed. And so Psalm 24, 3 and 5, for instance, who, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And what does the text say? He will receive blessing from the Lord. Asaph says... With, I think, a genuine response. That's me. I've done that. I've I've lived how God wants me to live to the best of my ability. But as I look around me and my situation, all seems to be in vain. I I don't feel a recipient of blessing from you, Lord. It's all for nothing. It did not provide what it promised. And then he goes on in verse 14. There's say there's nothing but trouble to speak of. All day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
The wicked never suffer, and yet I suffer all day long. It's just bitter irony of, the, of his situation, his experience. And it's not stated, but it could be that Asaph is actually suffering at the hands of these wicked people. And so he's saying, every morning I wake up and I get kicked in the face again. It seems as though God treats his enemies better than he treats his friends. This is what Asaph's struggle is. And to make it worse, verse 15, he can't tell anyone. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. There's another translation I think gets the sense right. If I had publicized these thoughts, I would, would have betrayed your faithful ones. While he had these wrestlings in his souls, to verbalize those doubts would destroy the faith of others. And he knew there was a line that he wouldn't cross. And that's so different from today for many Christians that there's this sense that it's kind of trendy to be authentic and real and just babble our doubts all the time. Now, there is a place for genuine, honest communication and and as we lay our souls bare. But I think Asaph helps us here. There's a line we don't cross. In verse 16, it's just so painful him. He can't get his mind around. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I kept looking for an answer to come up with one, and there's nothing to find. I, I couldn't make sense of it. And, and, and shouldn't we be glad that we can't make sense of evil? I mean, that's, a, that's a good thing. But are you inclined in times of trials and suffering? Are you inclined to maybe this tendency, this posture of the heart? Woe is me, God. Look at me. Self-absorption. You turn in on yourself. Poor, poor me. And because self-pity, it seems humble, but it's really pride, isn't it? Because a low view of self, yes, but it's also a very low view of God. And so the self-confident wicked, the Leopolds, and the self-pitying, quote, righteous, they have something in common, don't they? Self. Self. It's a, it's a life focused on self, looking at themselves, comparing themselves to others. And so maybe you're not a comparer, but you're a complainer. Woe is me. Well, okay, what, do, what is the right posture to take? And this is where, thankfully, we get to go. This is the good stuff. And, and looking at others fails, looking at ourselves yields nothing. And then there's this third posture of the heart. But God, look at you. Look at you. This is the worshiper. Asaph stopped looking at the wicked. He stopped looking at himself. He finally looked to God in worship. So back in verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. This is the turning point for him. He doesn't tell us what happened when he went there. Maybe it was as a priest stood and read the scriptures. Maybe it was... As the song leader said, turn to Psalm whatever, and they sang, maybe it was as a prayer was offered. We don't know, but what we do see is this is how God works. He uses means to change his people and to help his people and to comfort his people and to reorient his people. And so Asaph went to the place where he was supposed to be, and God gave him this complete realignment of his perspective, his reorientation of his faith, this complete paradigm shift from where his mind and his heart was going. And so 
our inclination when we stumble and when we struggle and when we falter and when our heart and flesh fail as it does for Asaph, what is, we tend to pull away from others, to turn in on ourselves. I mean, this is my tendency. When we wrestle with those questions, how can God be good? Just, 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 how can he be just and loving in view of this? If he loved me, this wouldn't be happening. When we're struggling with those questions, those sincere doubts and wrestlings, when we get into that frame of mind and we begin to lean on our own understanding and our own wisdom and our own observations and our knowledge and experience, there's nothing good that can come from that. And so we say one of the worst things we can do is to shut ourselves up in a room with ourselves. We're the last people we need to be hearing from and to be with. So God uses the people of God. He uses the Bible. He uses preaching. He uses singing and praying. And all that stuff takes place here in the assembly, in the assembly of God's people. Because it's there that you realize God, not you, is the center of the universe. And that he's the most important person. That he's the one who's exalted. And so Asaph says, God, realign my heart as I started to worship. God, allow me to see things as they really are and to see him as he really is and to see myself as I really am. He uses the, the, the people of God and the assembly to realign our hearts. And so when you're huddled away in your bedroom or your den by yourself and you're, you're struggling with these things and you're listening to yourself more than you're talking to yourself, that's a dangerous place to be. And I think Asaph would say to us in view of this, he said, get up and go to church. Go to church. Sing God's praises. I mean, it's amazing how a single line in a hymn can just blow apart the spiritual haze that we're living in. And so this is what Ephesians 5 tells us. We were there just a few weeks ago. Singing to one another, those who are filled with the Spirit, they sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in their heart to the Lord. And this is what we need in the assembly. I need you to come in and I need you to sing with to me in times like this. It is well with my soul. Now you sing it with conviction because we, we need that, uh, that ministry of one another. And this is what Asaph says, until I came to the sanctuary of God, that changed everything for me. It's the perspective of the house of God that shows us how things really are. And that's the beauty and the power of the Lord's day worship. I mean, God gives us one day in seven to have this realignment of our hearts and our faith. And so we come here and we say, God is king. We sing these things. Jesus is savior. He reigns. God has a plan through Jesus' blood. All my sins forgiven are forgiven. Through his righteousness, I'm acceptable before God. We say those things. We come to the Lord's table. And, and it just shows us and it just gives us equilibrium again in our lives. And, and, and that gives us that spiritual center of balance that we need. And so we see no matter what we're, what we're going through, Christ is enough. His substitutionary death, it just sets us straight again. In sickness, suffering, job loss, foreclosure, whatever we're going through, Christ is sufficient. His grace is enough. So it tells us that. And so this is, this is what the Lord used. So what happened when Asaph went to the sanctuary of God? Verse 17, then I discerned their end. Then I discerned their end. We might say, I was really struggling until I came to church and I saw that God is love. And that's true. But what Asaph says is, 
My foot almost slipped. I was about to fall away from you, God, until I came to the sanctuary of God and I saw the end of the wicked. You know what? Eschatology salvaged Asaph's faith. I'm not talking about horns and beasts and wall charts and stuff like that. I'm talking about God wins. <laughs> he wins. He brings, he brings triumph. He brings judgment. He will judge the wicked. He's not given all the answers, all the whys and all the hows, but he's shown and reminded that God will take care of things in the end. He always does. And he sees also in verse 18, the wicked are not as sure-footed as they seem. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So their easy easy life is not what it seems. This is what he sees in the sanctuary. It's an illusion because there is an after for the wicked, an end to them. They may look fat and happy now, but they are walking on slippery ice, he says. It, was, it seemed like Asaph's feet were about to slip out from under him, but what he finds out, it was the wicked's feet. They were on slippery places. Payday was coming. There's a hymn, you, you may know, this is my father's world, and the line in there says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me not forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is ruler yet. It seems that the tyrants and the oppressors, God is ruler yet. And so seeing God rightly, he sees the wicked rightly, and he sees himself rightly. It's in the sanctuary that the true state of Asaph's heart is revealed. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. It was embittered. It's like the word we get of vinegar, sour. It's like my heart just had this pus in it, this in my soul. It was disgusting, seething. I saw the ugliness of my heart and God, he allowed me to own it. And and, and all this self-pity, all of self-absorption is revealed when he draws near to God and he says, I was like a big, dumb animal towards you, God. When I was embittered, I was was like a beast. And again, one of the popular ways of thinking today is, it's okay to get mad at God. He can take it. He's big enough. You you yell at him and you, you get on to his case and you tell him what for and he can take it. And what Asaph, he finally gets through this and he's thinking clearly again. He says, When I was in that condition, I was like a beast. I was in no condition. I was senseless and dumb. I was in no frame of mind to make major decisions or anything like that. Verse 23, this this is glorious. (laughs) Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Even when it didn't seem like it, I am always with you. Not, I am always with you because deep down inside I'm a good person. What does the text say? I'm always with you because what? Because you have taken hold of me. You've taken hold of me, God. 
During the agonizing trial, God seemed far away from Asaph. But on the other side, when his sanity is restored, he says, I'm still standing, Lord, because you never let me go. Not standing here because I'm part cat and I always land on my feet and, and just instinctively. I'm standing here because you've held me. You've held my hand. You kept me standing. You never let go. And afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Again, we see eschatology salvaging his fate, not just with the destiny of the wicked, but his own destiny. And then in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I mean, it's a change of heart in Asaph. It doesn't come because God immediately came down and smote the wicked and, and brought justice. It came from a renewed perspective on who God is and, and what his worth is. That's what it was, the sufficiency of God and his grace. And so God was again Asaph's treasure and the sole object of his desire and of his worship. One, Omer Martins, he said, listen to this, Res- Resolution comes eventually not in the intellectual harmonization of doctrine and experience, but in the recognition of how large is the believer's wealth in having God. You get that? It's, it's, not in the, it's not in God saying, this is why I'm allowing this to happen. And so we, we get that, that intellectual connection between our experience and between truth. We don't always understand that. The, the, the comfort comes in us understanding how great our wealth is in God, that he's everything, that he's enough. That's where the hope and comfort comes. And so his conclusion, verse 26, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength. God is the strength. He's the, the word, there's the crag, like a rocky summit, the stability, safety. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Again, Asaph, he's a Levite. He he doesn't have any inheritance, any land inheritance or anything like that. What does God say of the Levites? I'm your inheritance. It's me. I'm your inheritance. So he says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You've heard this quote probably from C.S. Lewis, but I think this has always stuck with me. The one who has everything and God has nothing more than the one who has only God. And that's so true. We, We have everything we need in God. All we have is Christ. We sing this. Verse 27, 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. At first, it seemed like, again, Asaph was slipping and the wicked were secure. But in the end, what does he see? In reality, the wicked are slipping. Asaph He's secure. He's kept. He's got a refuge. And he didn't come to that conclusion by looking at others. He didn't come at that conclusion by staring at his navel and just trying to look introspectively. He came to that conclusion, what? Looking at God, coming into the sanctuary and beholding God and his wonder and his worth. And he says, all of this that I may tell of all your works. When I was going through the agony of the trial and the wrestlings of my soul, there was that line I couldn't cross and I wouldn't wouldn't speak of the doubts and and wonderings of my heart. And yet now I come out on the other side, I've got to tell everyone, God is good. He's good and he does good. And and so we tell that good news. So we need to be careful. We We don't need to be comparers. God, look at them. We don't need to be 
complainers. God, look at me. We need to be worshipers. God, look at you. Look at you. The vastness of your great greatness and your grace. We need a right perspective of him. And so which posture are we taking? He says in the end, but, but for me it is good to be near God. And what we see so clearly in Scripture, the way we, well, let me say, it's not good to be near God if we're not, as we would see in the New Testament, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's a dangerous thing to be near to God. But the way it's good to be near to God, it's not that we do things to achieve that standing before God and so that it becomes a good thing. It's not that we work our way near to him. Let me just read from Titus chapter 3 and we'll wrap it up here. Titus chapter 3. He says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. See see what happens in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What we see when God's nearness is our good, we see as revealed in scripture is that God's goodness moved toward us. His goodness and his kindness appeared to us in Christ. And so it's in him that we find this truth and reality. And so out of this excruciating process and out of Asaph's struggle, the conclusion stands and we need to hear it again and we need to have this locked in our mind. Surely God is good. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we do have the opportunity to see the soul of Asaph laid bare and not in some um, just horizontal explanation of his struggle, but it's in the context of a song a worship song. And so thank you that this worship leader, through the inspiration of your spirit, let, let us see this agony because we can relate to it. We sense this, we feel this, this gap between what we see and what we know to be true. And thank you though that he came out on the other side where we need to be coming out is that God is good. Thank you that you are good in all times, Lord, in all things, in all ways. When it doesn't seem like it, you're good. When everything's going great, it's not that the planets are aligned, it's that you're good. Everything's, it's you're good, all times, God. Help us to find great comfort and refuge in that reality, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.